so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Gavin Orland, a pastor and author of a recent book entitled, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. And today we talk about the nature of Christian theism, as well as apologetics. Gavin earned his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary and serves as a senior pastor of First Baptist Ohio in Ojai, California. He's the author of several books, including Anselm's Pursuit of Joy and Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. He and his wife, Esther, have five children. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Gavin, it's really great to have you here on the podcast on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your ministry there in California, some of your academic interests, and what led you ultimately to write a book on Christian theism? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm a senior pastor of a church, uh, First Baptist Church here in Ojai, which is uh, about 80 miles northwest of LA. And my broader interests in writing is probably most in the realm of historical theology. So learning from church history as we do theology today. So I'm really interested in the church fathers and some of the ancient theologians in the church. But I also am interested in apologetics. And that's where this book comes out of. There's lots of reasons for that. And I also run a YouTube channel called Truth Unites, where I address issues of apologetics, ecumenical engagement with other traditions, and then also just general theology. So those are some of my interests. No, that's fantastic. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast. One, you're just kind of a wealth of knowledge. And two, this is such a helpful book. I think for a lot of folks who may not be super familiar with apologetics or even ideas of philosophy, uh, while it being an academic book and obviously being challenging, the way you write is very engaging. Um, and I think it's very eye-opening for a lot of folks that kind of may be entering into a lot of these things. Early on in the preface, though, this is really a, beside the argument that you make in the book. Um, but you you point out that we live in an age of distraction and sound bites, And I think that kind of resonates with all of us uh, that we talk about, whether it's uh, little short YouTube clips on Twitter or little sound bites or these kind of 180 or 280 characters 
um, on social media. We live in this kind of age of distraction and kind of dumbing things down and not getting into kind of being able to plumb the depths of uh, a lot of topics. And so deep and careful reading is not always a top priority for a lot of folks. Um, and so one of the things that we try to do with this specific podcast is to dig deep, um, but to kind of introduce people to really important works and really important folks that are writing on very particular issues in the public square. So I wanted to ask you, as, as one who's written kind of depth, you plumb the depths here, you're doing such good work. What are some of the ways that you can you think that can help us think better and to think more deeply and to have more sustained study as we dig into kind of the depths of theology, ethics, and ideas of philosophy? Yeah, I think about this a lot because it is kind of a worrisome aspect of our culture right now. People talk about how social media is making us dumber <laughs> and this kind of thing. And, you know, you can understand how that can happen because we're just bombarded with constant information. But that doesn't always translate into rational thought and wisdom and the kind of kind of more uh, meditative way of, of thinking through things. You know, a simple practice for me that I have found absolutely necessary and I keep having to come back to it and hone it and kind of readjust my practices is just taking a break from social media and then sometimes from screens altogether. I find even lately I've noticed my, my eyesight, I think, is affected by staring at a screen so much of the time. And it's easy to do, you know, certain, for a lot of us, our work is, is bound up with a computer or something like that throughout the day. So, uh, the simple discipline, and it takes a lot of discipline because the, many of these devices are designed to be addictive. And it, I really have come to feel it's important for all of us to wrestle with what are our limitations and setting up guardrails. You know, there's various ways to do this. And I, I actually wrote a blog post about this one time, just how to set some guardrails. So without going into too much detail, just that simple practice of limiting our exposure so that I'll have, you know, a morning where I don't check anything, but I'm straight into the books. And I'm not even checking my email because then it starts my brain going in a different direction. So sometimes just, you know, closing the phone and the computer and just, you know, there's, you know, I read a study once about how Twitter affects one part of the brain and reading the newspaper affects another. And that's why these two forms of getting news and information to people affect people so differently. And that a longer form taking in information like reading a newspaper or reading a book is really healthy, really needed. And so I just think trying to protect that is so important. Yeah, I know for myself, at least, I've tried to inculcate some of those patterns. We've talked a lot about that here on the podcast, especially of the nature of technology, how technology and specifically social media is forming and shaping us as people. And I know one of the things in the midst of my doctoral studies and teaching and as I'm writing, getting up in the morning and not looking at my phone um, at all. And then being able to dig deep for a couple hours is actually really life-giving and kind of uh, fulfilling to me, as well as not getting super distracted and kind of pulled aside by a lot of these things. And that's one of the reasons we um, host this podcast, is just to help people dig a little bit deeper on some important works, as we've said. So as we dive into kind of the nature of really what you wrote here, um, I'd love for you to kind of help us understand a little bit, because I think some listeners, when they hear ideas of words like apologetics or ideas of philosophy, either their eyes kind of glaze over and they're like, oh, I don't want to get into that stuff. It's way too complicated. and It's not really that connected to my daily life. Or they were just really confused by it, especially in school. That was not kind of their specific area. So what is apologetics and what is philosophy and how do the, the nature of these disciplines kind of connect with our everyday lives? They're not some esoteric disciplines. They're very, very practical. 
Can you help us to understand a little bit of that practical aspect of apologetics and philosophy? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think about this a great deal too. And I thought about it going into the book because as you mentioned, I really strove to write a book that was clear and engaging. I, I put all my heart into it to try to make it a joy for the reader as much as I can, just knowing partly what we've already mentioned, that reading deep books is not our culture's defining strength, but also that the ideas in the book do get pretty deep. You know, sometimes we're talking about the Big Bang and cosmology and these very deep concepts. So I really strove to write it clearly. So philosophy is just the branch of uh, academic study that deals with the big questions of what things are, what things mean, how we know. It's kind of one of the broadest and most abstract disciplines. Apologetics is defending the Christian, Christian faith. It doesn't mean apologizing. It means giving a defense for what we believe, making it commendable and clear to people, giving reasons for why we believe what we believe. And uh, the reason, uh, you know, it, it certainly can be done poorly to where it's boring and it feels disconnected and remote and, and far off from real life. But I believe that's because we do it poorly. I think when it's done well, it is not some far removed enterprise. In the book, uh, I'll just give two examples. If you think about the way your favorite movie makes you feel at the end, when there's a happy ending at the end of a, most movies, though not all have a happy ending. The good guys beat the bad guys somehow in the end. And there's some kind of resolution to the conflict. Think about the way that makes us feel. All it takes is about 15 seconds of reflecting on that feeling to start to generate questions like, well, why do we have that feeling? And does that ultimately mean anything? And Christian theism versus naturalism have two very different answers to that. Naturalism is the philosophy, just to make sure we're defining terms here in line with what you mentioned, that uh, only nature exists. There's only physical things. So on for naturalism, there's no God or heaven or soul, for example. And so that worldview is a very different explanation of happy endings than another. Another example than, than theism. Uh, another example is music. If you think about the way music makes you feel. Uh, this is another thing I get into in the book. Very quickly, you see there's very different frameworks for understanding the sense of transcendence that music conveys. And there's lots of other examples too, but boy, uh, philosophy done rightly intersects not just with everyday life, but with the deepest longings of the human heart, the deepest things of life. Yeah, that's one of the beauties of philosophy and specifically like kind of worldview studies as a broader category. And one of the reasons I love teaching it, especially to young college students, is a lot of times they come into class thinking that these things are like super esoteric, they're super disconnected, you know, they're very philosophical, meaning they're kind of outside of our everyday life. And then as we're working through a lot of these concepts and talking about these ideas, they go, oh, this makes sense. And it's like almost the light bulbs start kind of turning on and everything, they start looking around and going, oh, I understand and kind of see these things. And that's just the beauty and kind of one of the joys of teaching is watching kind of the eyes light up and everyone kind of, they're starting to see things around them um, in light of who God is, how he's created us in his image and how he calls us to live in this world. Digging into this idea of apologetics. So apologetics for me, when I was going through seminary and even some of my doctoral studies has never been a major emphasis of my studies. So I kind of focused a little bit more on uh, some other aspects of philosophy and specifically in ethics as a trained ethicist. So what are some of the kind of main questions that contemporary apologetics is seeking to address and kind of adjudicate? And how do these challenges to the faith help us to show the beauty of the Christian story? 
Okay, so some of the main issues within apologetics would be, I mean, the big ones would be, does God exist? And so apologists are seeking to give reasons for the existence of God. And there's a couple of key ones that have traditionally been seen as proofs for God. Another area would be the resurrection of Christ. This would be where we'd go from theism generally to Christian theism. And uh, there's some great apologists doing great work in this area, doing what I was skeptical that could be done as well as I now believe it can be done. And that is giving a historical appeal that we have good reasons to think Jesus did rise from the dead. That That's not just a matter of faith, but it's a rational belief that commends itself to us based upon what we see in history. Another area would be the problem of evil. This may be the greatest uh, objection that we face uh, from non-believers, and that's the seeming uh, sense that evil seems incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful God. Why does God allow there to be such pain and, and evil in this world? So those would be kind of, you know, just representative example areas where apologists are getting into and the other part of your question was about beauty. Yeah, kind of how does all this, how do these ideas, kind of these big questions of apologetics help to show the beauty of the Christian story? Yeah, this would be the emphasis of my book and that what I feel has sometimes been underrepresented by apologists. Some, If we think of the three transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful that the ancient philosophers spoke of, traditionally in Christian theology, Apologetics was not radically divorced from theology. It wasn't like the theologians are over here and the apologists are way over there. And also traditionally, apologetics was done in connection to all three of the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful. So there's this awareness. We want to make the Christian faith come across to people as true, but also as good and as beautiful. But sometimes that has been neglected, and there's been this focus on truth as the, the main thing apologists have to do is just you know give really, really convincing arguments that it's true. And I, the emphasis of my book is to say we can do a both and here. Yes, let's do that, but let's also show that it's good news. And in the book, I just talk a great deal about why that's so important right now. To sum it all up in just sort of one basic concept is that the gospel means good news. It's happy that Jesus rose from the dead, uh, especially when compared to, say, a naturalistic worldview where there's no happy ending, there's no ultimate meaning, there's no ultimate justice. Love and all transcendence are ultimately an illusion, fobbed off on us by the evolutionary process. And we really are trapped in a dark universe. And the more you look down the tunnel with that worldview, the more you see this is very dark. But uh, if Jesus rose from the dead, it means there's the infinite glory of God that we are created for to enjoy. And it means that there is eternal life forevermore with infinite happiness and so much more that we could say about that. So the, I just think it's really helpful to draw out those emotional implications as well as making a case for the truth of the gospel. Now, I want to come back to that kind of the idea of not just the having rational beliefs, but also our loves and our passions and desires and seeing the beauty and kind of how that really brings out the fullness of the Christian worldview. But before we get there, one of the things you mentioned early on were these four proofs of the existence of God. And that's really how you frame the book. You frame the book around these four proofs for the existence of God. Can you briefly, kind of at a 100,000-foot level, describe what those four proofs are? And that helps us to kind of, as we're navigating some of these bigger questions. Yes, sure. And these are, of course, not the only four, but they're four of the most prominent 
arguments for the existence of God. And this is, of course, what my whole book is. It's just an argument for the existence of God. So I'm drawing from these four and I'm putting them in a narrative frame, uh, which is the other unique emphasis of my book. But the four are uh, first what is sometimes called a cosmological argument, which argues that God is the first cause of the universe. So basically, if you trace the chain of causation back, you need to have some kind of uncaused first cause. The second is the teleological argument, sometimes called the argument from design. This is the idea that God is the best explanation for the apparent design and meaning and order of our universe. Uh, The third argument is the moral argument. This is the argument that God is the best explanation for uh, the objectivity of moral values and duties. Objectivity meaning they don't change from one time to another or from one culture to another. Certain things are are just wrong permanently, irrespective of someone's opinion, whether it's popular or not. And then the last argument, you could call a Christological argument or something like that, that is an argument from Jesus. Here I'm making an argument partly from the resurrection, which we just mentioned, and partly from what is sometimes called the Lord, Liar, Lunatic trilemma that C.S. Lewis popularized in Mere Christianity. And now we want to add in the, to make it a fourfold option, the the, uh, legend category as well. So Lord, Liar, Lunatic, Legend. The basic idea there is that Jesus claimed to be God. The best explanation for that is that he was telling the truth rather than he's crazy or lying or, and it does look like it's not a legend that it really happened. So that's the fourth chapter there, argument from Jesus. So I'm just trying to be real brief, kind of giving the headings, I guess, but we can press into that at all if you want to. Yeah, for sure. And one of the ones that I want to definitely press into is that question of the good, the question of uh, ethics um, and morality, I think is one of the most interesting, especially in light of a lot of the kind of big pressing questions that our culture is asking today, um, that objectivity of good, uh, that it doesn't fluctuate and change and be, it's not very subjective or relativistic, I think is really key. And something I found even in just kind of evangelistic conversations with friends and being able to share the gospel, that's one that seems to kind of open people's eyes up a little bit. And they're like, oh yeah, that's actually a good point. We kind of have some really healthy dialogue. Not that they always become a Christian at the end of it, but I think it's kind of pressing along and hopefully the Lord is kind of working in their life. One of the things that I wanted to get to before we just kind of dive into some of the arguments um, is I think a lot of times when people hear about kind of the arguments for the existence of God, they're often presented obviously as kind of this rational aspect of humanity in the sense that we can either reason our way to God or we can... Um, understand certain things about God um, that are just typically about believing the right things, having the right theology, having the right kind of philosophical beliefs. And in recent years, we've seen kind of a trend, especially among some philosophers, to say, well, your heart and your dispositions, the things that you love, actually reveal a lot about what you truly believe. And we've said that here on the podcast a few different times, whether it's our theology and our philosophy, these rational beliefs informing our actions— but also our actions revealing what we truly believe and kind of this uh, interdependent kind of reciprocal relationship. So I know you posit specifically in here and kind of that these arguments can be reimagined to address a lot of the questions that our current cultural moment is asking, that people in our communities are asking. Why do you think that these kind of proofs for the existence of God are actually really helpful as we get in kind of into that more of apologetic kind of uh, evangelistic type of enterprise today? Yeah, sometimes people... Uh, think of arguments as they have they have a negative reaction to arguments and almost as though arguments 
feel argumentative or overly rational. I've come to feel for a long time now that our culture actually argues too little, not too much, and that arguments are a good thing. Using reason to try to persuade someone is what we need more of. Too often in our culture, the the general state of discourse is just to denounce (laughs) and to ratchet up the outrage by, you know, just zinging insults at someone without actually making a a, a good argument. And so argumentation is a a friend and a help to having a, a, a civil, rational society. So I really think argumentation is a good thing. And I think arguments, you know, it's easy to, I think sometimes people can react to those who overly emphasize the rational aspect of argumentation as though if your reasoning is strong enough, you will persuade someone. And we recognize, well, we're holistic creatures. Arguments are not enough. We need more than mere rationality. But still, that is important. That's one aspect of our witness. And it's easy to react to that by going so far in the other direction that we don't appreciate that sometimes the Holy Spirit uses arguments to help people. Reason is not a bad thing. It's as long as we don't overemphasize it. And so, yeah, in in the book, I'm using what are called abductive arguments. And that just means inferences to the best explanation. So this is a less uh, certain form of logical inference than, say, a deductive argument. It's just giving you a plausible solution or outcome. It's not giving you a certain one. And so, you know, one of the ways we can make arguments like this is to say to our friends, um, if you value love, or if you think that objective moral values and duties exist, what's the best framework in which to understand that? And we're not, that's a little different than saying this does exist and therefore God must exist. Now, I think people can do that as well. I'm not against that form of apologetics too, but some people find this more modest abductive approach of, as you kind of put it, look at the way you already live, look at what you already value. God makes a lot more sense of that than a naturalistic worldview. And that's just, that's one more modest appeal that some people find really helpful and persuasive. I know one of the primary worldviews that you interact with through the book, and one of the things that I really like about the book is the way you frame it up, is it's not just these kind of four proofs for the existence of God, but you're also in dialogue with kind of a robust dialogue partner in the sense of naturalism. And I think for a lot of us, we come from kind of a, either come from kind of naturalistic arguments, that's what we were taught, that's what we kind of grew up on, or many friends and family members or those in our communities may be believing, kind of living in a more naturalistic framework. And the thing that I like about that is that you're not only just saying this is what Christian theism is, but you're saying this is what Christian theism is in light of this other worldview. So one of the things I wanted to see if you could do is kind of build on some of the definition that you've already started to posit about what naturalism is, and maybe a few of the kind of main figures or kind of folks that are promoting kind of more naturalistic worldview in our, our society today. Sure. Well, one thing, so we, so we defined uh, naturalism as the philosophy that only physical nature exists, therefore there's no God, gods, heaven, uh, soul, things like this. So one to build on that a bit, I mean, one of the things that this results in is that every aspect of the human condition is explained reductively by evolution. And that just means that, you know, so a theist could believe that evolution plays some kind of role to a greater or lesser degree, but on a naturalistic worldview, that's the only game in town. There's nothing outside of that process. And so one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to show 
look how that kind of is is vitiating to so much of our humanity, our moral instincts. There's no objective good or evil out there. It's just an illusion fobbed off on us because it helped our animal ancestors survive. There's no happy ending coming. There's no moral resolution. There's no ultimate transcendent moral meaning. Um, our desire for beauty, our longing for heaven, for the afterlife, for reunion, our sense of transcendence in the arts, so many uh, love, the value of love, the value of justice, so much of what makes human life worth living is undermined by what we call evolutionary psychology, if that's the only way that we can explain our humanity. So I'm trying to just draw attention to that in the book and going through lots of different test cases. And it really is a dark uh, worldview when you look down, down the road at it. So in terms of uh, representative examples, I mean, one of the interesting things would be there's been this change from what I talk about as the old atheists versus the new atheists. Older atheists would be these classical thinkers like Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, and Albert Camus, the French existentialists in the 20th century, people like this, kind of classical philosophers who are, are atheists. And then uh, today people speak of the new atheists, people like Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, many others. In the book, I interface a little bit with people like Steven Pinker, who's a contemporary secular thinker. I interact a little bit with Bill Maher, who's kind of a popular personality, TV personality, who's a secular thinker. And one of the differences between the old atheists and the new atheists is the new atheists are much more bombastic and aggressive and think of religion as this evil thing, but also they're more optimistic about atheism. Uh, they think it can ground morality and reason usually, whereas the older atheists, I think, were more consistent because they saw through to see the dark implications of atheism. And I talk about that from Sartre and from Nietzsche as they saw that. So that it's kind of interesting to observe that some of the examples of a naturalistic worldview out there, they've changed a lot in, you know, from a hundred years ago till now. Yeah. I know one of the things that you do in the book, the, I think it's the third kind of uh, proof uh, for the existence of God. You're focusing on the nature of morality and the kind of those questions of an objective reality or a subjective reality or a relativistic kind of reality. And being one who really loves ethics and studies ethics and likes to teach it, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of apologetics for me is this idea of kind of moral apologetics and how our ideas of the good kind of lead us to, in many ways, the existence of a creator God, um, kind of an idea of theism that has created us in a particular way. How is that innate sense of morality that we all feel? I think that's one of the things that was interesting, especially over the last few years with things like the war in Ukraine. I think we naturally, in a world that's very subjective in terms of morality, of you get to define your own realities, you define your own good, the most of the world came together and said, look, what's happening in the Ukraine is wrong. The Russian invasion is actually, it's wrong. And then I just, I kind of naturally thought, where does that come from? Like, where is that idea that we're saying this is right and this is wrong? And it's so objective in certain cases, but not in others. So how is this kind of in, innate sense of morality better grounded in a transcendent order rather than something more imminent uh, in search of like uh, the naturalistic argument that you talk about in the book? Well, there's a lot to this, and I probably won't be able to regurgitate the full <laughs> argument just from memory here. But one of the things, a few things we can say is, for a theist, there is a source uh, for our perception of 
objective morality, namely the will and character of God, that is able to ground it as objective. For the naturalist, it's extremely difficult to see what that source, or in the book I use the category of an ontological basis, so that ontological having to do with being. So what is there that actually makes morality consistent, such that 1,000 years from now or 1,000 years ago, whether anybody says so, or let's, let's make it culturally relevant, if you're living in Nazi Germany, even though it's legal to do certain things that we today, most of us would recognize as absolutely despicably wrong, but it was legal, nonetheless, it was still wrong. Uh, so that that's what we mean by an objective morality. It's unchanging according to the whims and variations of human culture and, and opinion. Now, the problem for naturalism is where do we get that from? It doesn't come out of the evolutionary process. The animal kingdom operates according to the strong devour the weak. There is no value for individual rights, for the value of compassion. It's hard to see where that would come from. And yet we all have this deep-seated instincts. Some of us may be moral relativists until we're mistreated or until we see real evil. But the power of the conscience is, honestly, John Henry Newman talked about this as this unique argument. I, I wonder if the moral argument may be the strongest argument for God because the conscience is so powerful. We know deep within some things are wrong, you know? And again, it's really hard to see. The evolutionary process can explain why we might feel that way from a biological standpoint at most, but it can't explain so far as I can see how there could be some ontological basis for morality itself. And I give the anecdote in this uh, to start off this chapter from my favorite book, probably my favorite book of all time, uh, That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis, where this character is, is being subjected to this psychological torture from the people are trying to make him go crazy. And uh, his name is Mark. And he discovers the power of morality and he discovers objective morality. And he talks about how there comes uh, rising up in his mind against the, the crooked and uh, sour and broken images that his tormentors are throwing into his mind, this vision of the good and the straight and the sweet goodness. And he says it rises up in his mind like this mountain with hard surfaces that he can cling to. It's a great image for objective morality. And again, on a naturalistic worldview, I don't know how we could believe in that. A lot of people do inconsistently. And naturalists as people can be very moral people. But in terms of the object, the ontological basis for that conviction, I don't know where that would come from. So that's one of the sections in that chapter that was really intriguing to me was this idea of the conscience. So we talk a lot about whether it's in terms of like religious freedom, we'll talk about the freedom of the conscience uh, we'll talk about not binding the conscience. And so we th this language is used a lot um, throughout our culture today. And I, I just have, it's a really intriguing question to me, and I don't have a particular answer to it per se. And so I wanted to see if maybe you might speak to it a little bit as well. But what is the conscience and, in that sense? And then how, and as Christians, we believe in, a, obviously we believe that God created us in his image, that he's created this, these objective moral norms, but also the reality of sin. So we can't really rely completely on our conscience because our conscience can be marred. It can be disfigured. It can be uh, manipulated. It can be not something that we can always trust. And so I just wanted to see if you could kind of play out a little bit, like what is the conscience? And then how does sin affect our conscience in that sense? 
Okay, the conscience is the human perception of right and wrong. From a naturalistic perception, it is a spinoff of the evolutionary process. It's something that came into being because it had survival value to help us uh, survive and pass on our genes. From a Christian perspective, as you alluded to, it's a part of the image of God within us. It's a part of the character of God. It is basically in the category of general revelation. So just as Psalm Psalm 19 talks about how the heavens declare the glory of God, so we know of God's existence through the, the stars and the sky and the beauty around us. This is general revelation as opposed to special revelation. Uh, so the conscience is in that category. And Romans 2 talks about this, uh, for example. So that's the basic idea of what the, the conscience is. And again, two very different uh, interpretations of that for a theist versus a naturalist. And then you mentioned that, yeah, sin affects the conscience. So this is true. Um, I mean, there's the reality of there are sociopaths. Uh, there are people who have a, a diminished or really non-functioning altogether conscience. Um, and then also all of us will have, some of us have oversensitive consciences at times. Our conscience is not infallible or perfect. So, the, and that, that would be a, a, a manifestation of the fact that we are imperfect and we are uh, fallen. So that's a reality that needs to be remembered. I don't think that would undermine the larger argument here of our imperfect access to this objective morality doesn't mean it is not objective, but it, this is uh, something we have to remember as we're making moral judgments. Yeah, I know, especially within the kind of the field of Christian ethics, that's one of the questions that comes up about the role of general revelation, or some will talk about it in the idea of like natural law and the usefulness of natural law ethics, but also sometimes the extent kind of limited use of natural law ethics. And so there's a lot, obviously, that we could unpack there. And I know uh, there's a lot in this book that we could obviously unpack. You have uh, just a wealth of resource here, and I really encourage listeners to go check this out. Uh, It's a really, really well done book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't. Talking about the beauty of Christian theism, I know one of the things that we always do at the very end of a podcast um, that I want to kind of pick your brain about are some resources. So a lot of times when we have folks here on the podcast to talk about uh, these various ideas, sometimes there's big ideas. I always want to leave folks with some next steps, some next resources that they could check out. Obviously, we want them to go check out your book from Baker Academic. Um, But what are some other books that you might say, um, this was really formative or helpful for me? or books that you think could be a good next step if people want to dig a little bit deeper into the ideas of Christian theism or uh, concepts of naturalism? Okay, well, let me mention the two resources I mentioned at the start of the book that I think are great contemporary books. And then I also want to encourage people to read some of the classic literature too, which is easier to get into than sometimes people can would expect. But um, Tim Keller's two books, first, The Reason for God, second, his follow-up book that goes a little further from a little different angle, starts further back in a way, uh, Making Sense of God. Two fantastic books. They're in the realm of almost sort of cultural apologetics, but they get into all kinds of just intellectual apologetics too. Boy, they've had a huge impact, and I'm, I've am i learned so much from him and from those books. I would highly recommend them. Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, fantastic book, goes through the top objections. Again, that one is starting further back than my book. My book is sort of best positioned for people who are somewhat open to the conversation already. Those books could be of interest, especially the second of the two Keller books, to those who don't have any interest in religion at all. And it's really just starting at a baseline. 
Um, so those are two great books. I love to encourage people as well. And there's lots of great Christian philosophers out there. People can watch William Lane Craig debates on YouTube. He does a fantastic job. There's many others as well. Um, but I love to encourage people to read the classic, some of the classic resources too. And I'll just mention one that had the biggest impact upon me and really was the book that stood behind my book more than any other. And that's Blaise Pascal's Pensée or Thoughts. He was a, a French Catholic philosopher, famous for his famous wager, but he had so many other things to say. And he just emphasizes the psychological aspect of these choices. And uh, he has a lot of wisdom at that level and a lot of just other just pithy comments that I think are neglected and undervalued. And I think people would find that really interesting. There's a great addition to that that Peter Kreeft introduces and comments on that people could find that I found really helpful to read through. So that might be of interest to people. Yeah, and that's one of the things we've talked a lot about here on the podcast and had a few guests talk about as well, is that idea of the, the kind of the value of reading old books. Often it's it's helpful and we don't want to neglect contemporary books um, by any means. But a lot of these older books, I think, are actually sometimes more helpful in the sense that they kind of get us out of kind of the cultural kind of moment that we're in and help us to see things typically a lot clearer. But also a lot of these texts are things that have um, had a wide-ranging impact and kind of influence throughout society and throughout the church. Um, so those can be really helpful resources for folks to pick up. Uh, we'll make sure to link to all of those resources, including your really helpful book, in the show notes for listeners if they want to check those out. Um, but Gavin, I just want to thank you. One, I want to thank you for your work, the ministry that you're doing there in California, and um, specifically for coming today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. I really enjoyed it. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you connect with Dr. Ortland and learn more about this new volume as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think about the biggest issues in the public square today, along with the top tech news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.